please turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Continuing our study through Ecclesiastes, this morning we come to chapter 9. We'll read the first 12 verses. God's word is holy, God's word is inerrant, and God's word is powerful. Please give it your attention. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because you know that your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I don't know how many of you might have noticed, but there's been kind of an amusing theological debate that's been going on between two of the best quarterbacks in the National Football League. It started after the Seattle Seahawks won the NFC title game last year over the Green Bay Packers. Russell Wilson, who is the quarterback of the Seahawks and also a professing Christian, told a reporter after that game that God had set the Seahawks up for that dramatic victory. Well, later, Aaron Rodgers, who is also a professing Christian, heard about that comment, and he said to the reporters, I don't think God cares about the outcome of football games. 
I don't think God is a football fan. Well, that didn't end the back and forth on the issue because earlier this season, the Packers and the Seahawks played each other again, and this time the Packers won. And so in his interview after the game, Aaron Rodgers told reporters, tonight, God was a Packers fan. Now that's a silly dispute, and it's a common one, actually, among sports figures and their fans. If you're a sports fan, admit it. You have found yourself wrestling with whether you should pray for your team to win a game. But when you think about it, aren't there some really big, serious theological issues behind that silly question? Is God a Packers fan? Is God a Seahawks fan? Does he care who wins the game between them? Behind those silly questions are really important questions like, does God exist? If God exists, is he aware of what happens on earth? And if he is aware of what's happening on earth, does he care about things, even things like a football game? To take it a little deeper, matter of fact, a lot deeper, does he control those things that happen, all things that happen on the face of the earth? And then the final big question where it gets personal is if all those are true, if he exists, he knows, he cares, and he's in control, then Whose side is he on? Is he on my side? Is he for me or is he against me? That's a really important big question for all of you to answer. Well, there's two things I do know is that according to scripture, God does control all things, even football games. And secondly, he's not a Seahawks fan or a Packers fan or even a Steelers fan. His purposes in the affairs of men are much more complex than ours. And so there's no simple answer to those kind of questions. We've been listening to the thoughts, conclusions of the person that we call Koheleth, the Hebrew word for the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. I've been calling him Professor Q because he's not primarily a preacher per se, but he is an intellectual. He's a philosopher. He is an astute, well-resourced student researcher of all things that happen under the sun. He's a fictional character, as we presented it, of the original writer, the wise, godly writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. Whoever wrote it, Solomon or whoever wrote the book, wrote it in the voice, most of it, in the voice of this Professor Q to present a worldview that disallows any input from anything that's above and beyond the sun. This researcher, this scientist, Professor Q, studies life as he can observe it with his five senses, as he can experience it. And he tries to determine what's true and beyond that to try to find meaning in the world if that's all that we can know is what's under the sun. With no word from above, with no revelation from outside of this created world. 
And what we have seen is that he does believe in a God because you can't look at this beautiful, well-designed creation and not believe that there's a powerful, personal, and just God that's behind it. He knows that from observation alone. And he also believes that God is involved. This creator is involved in the details of the affairs of man. And he also sees him as being absolutely in control of all things that happen under the sun. He knows that by observation alone. In chapter 3, remember, he says There's a t- there is a time for every activity under the sun. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to weep, and a time to laugh. He's saying there that God controls our times because he's the one who sets the time, the place, the circumstances for all the activities of our lives. It's clear from what he goes on to say in chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And he goes goes on to say in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people might fear before him. He has a very strong view of God's sovereignty, that God controls everything under the sun. As a matter of fact, that's what he's getting at in verse 1 of the passage today here in chapter 9 when he says that we are all in the hand of God. The hand of God is a phrase, it's a, they, theologians call it an anthropomorphism, it's a, it's a phrase that scripture uses to talk about God's control. When you say that something's in the hand of God, in other words, it's totally under his control, it's at his disposal and under his care. That can be a good thing, can be a bad thing, depending on God's disposition towards the one that's in his hand. So what the Bible teaches, both here and everywhere in Scripture, is that we are not self-determining, independent free agents. The Bible does not teach that. Your television teaches that. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that we are in the hand of God. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11 says, I am God and there is no other declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's the view of God that scripture lays before us. And Q sees that. He doesn't need revelation from heaven to understand that. As he observes life under the sun, he recognizes that. But what really bothers Q is that he cannot figure out what the hand of God is doing under the sun. To him, the hand of God is enigmatic. To him, the hand of God is indecipherable. And that's what he keeps coming back to. If you want to get at the core of what distresses and and drives Q to despair over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes is that he doesn't understand what the sovereign, powerful, detailed hand of God is doing under the sun. Remember those last two verses we ended with in chapter 8 last week? At the very last two verses says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, he goes on to say, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. 
And again, that's a teaching that's consistent with, with the rest of Scripture. Q always says things that are true. He just doesn't give the whole truth because he confines his observations to what's under the sun. But what he says is true. That by man's wisdom, you cannot discern what God's hand is doing under the sun. And so that drives us to the important question. If God exists, if he's sovereign over all things, and if he's involved in the details of your life, then the most important question for any of us to answer is, is God for us or is he against us? And Q says you can't know that answer under the sun. Matter of fact, he goes on in verse 2 to say something that's even a little more distressing than that. He says we can't, basically we can't do anything to affect, to move the hand of God. He says, he says, first of all, that the hand of God is unmoved by our good deeds. Look at verse 2. It is the same for all. In other words, the same things happen to everyone. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. You hear what he's saying there? This is really his main point from last week's passage. That it doesn't matter whether you're good or evil, the same thing happens to everyone. There's no consistent connection, Q says, between doing good things in life and being rewarded under the sun. Just as there's no consistent connection between doing evil things and being punished under the sun. So, good works will not guarantee you there is no clear connection between doing good things and living a happy, healthy, comfortable prosperous, fulfilling life. That's what Q is observing as he looks at life under the sun. I'm sure all of you, if you ever watch television at all, have seen the Geico commercial about Pinocchio, where it says Pinocchio was a bad motivational speaker. And they show Pinocchio standing in the front of a conference hall in a seminar, and he's pointing to individuals in the seminar and saying, you have potential. You have potential. And every time he says it, his nose grows longer. As I watched that commercial, I often thought, if there is any justice in the world, prosperity preachers would have that same affliction. That Whenever they say, you can live your best life now, their nose would grow a little bit longer so everybody know that that's not how things work under the sun. But it's not just in bad churches that we hear that kind of message. Our culture is full of inspirational messages that say that good works will save you. Self-esteem messages are everywhere. It says, you can do it. Be all that you can be. Where there's a will, there's a way. Appealing to man's ability to make his life good. And Q is saying, I've tried it, done there, been there, been there, done that. Doesn't work. There's no guarantee of that whatsoever. Matter of fact, most of the time in his experience, the good people suffer and the wicked people prosper. You know, there was a very short period of time under the sun on earth where doing good things guaranteed that you would live a good, comfortable, prosperous, happy, satisfying life. That's when God said to Adam, if you obey me and do my will, then you will live. And by live, I mean you'll walk in my presence, under my blessing, under my favor for eternity. If you disobey me, you will die. 
and you will pay for your sins for eternity. That was a very short period of time on earth when that scenario worked. Doing good meant good things in your life. Doing bad meant punishment. But since Adam rebelled, all of us have been in a world where it doesn't work that way. Matter of fact, he goes on in verse 3 to say, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And so now, all the good and bad things that happen in the world, they happen to both good and bad people. So we can't move this unseen, indecipherable, enigmatic hand of God. We can't move it by doing good things and being good people. Secondly, he says, the hand of God is not moved by religion. Verse 2 goes on to say, the same event happens to the, to the clean and the unclean. And there he means ceremonially clean and ceremonially unclean. In other words, those who have performed all the right rituals in order to be accepted in worship to God. And then he goes on to say, to him who sacrifices, that's the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, that he's talking about there, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. He who swears, and there he's referring to an oath of devotion to God, and as is he who shuns an oath. So doing all the right religious things is not going to move the hand of God to give you a happy, healthy, prosperous, satisfying life. That's what he's saying. And again, this principle still applies today. What he says is absolutely true insofar as it goes. Going to church, singing hymns, reading your Bible, praying, doing any kind of religious rituals will not guarantee that your life is going to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and satisfying. And that's because the Bible, because of the fact that we, under the sun means under a, a creation that's under God's curse and people who are, have a sin nature they've inherited from our father Adam, because of that reality, the Bible never ties good health, financial prosperity, or happiness to faithful religious observances in a simplistic way. It doesn't work that way. Back in... 1985, there was a hurricane, Gloria. It was going up the East Coast. And the forecasters laid out its course where they expected it to hit land and do all its damage, and they said that that was going to be Virginia Beach, Virginia. It just so happens that that is where the studios and headquarters for Pat Robertson's television ministry was based. And so Pat Robertson, the TV preacher... He goes on the air as the hurricane is headed their way. And he calls on everybody there and all the, list, all the watchers and listeners to pray that God would spare their headquarters, their ministry headquarters and their studios. Lo and behold, at the last minute, the hurricane veered to the north and made landfall, land, landfall elsewhere. And so, and it, as he said, as he went on the air and claimed strongly, God has heard our prayers. He has delivered us from the hurricane. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, what about the praying people up the coast where the hurricane did hit? Did he not hear their prayers? Did he not love them too? Did he not love them as much? You see, that's what Hugh is saying. It doesn't work that way. You can't move the hand of God by religious ritual. So the bottom line is that Q is trying to get across to us, and this is true. 
There is nothing we can do to change what the hand of God is doing in the world. We are in the sovereign, unseen hand of God who directs all things according to his, Q says, unknown purpose. And so, according to Q, then, is there anything we can be sure about in life? Yes. He doesn't mention taxes, but he does mention death all the time. You can be sure that death is coming. The wages of sin is death. He says it in verse 3. The same event happens to all. What event is he talking about? He makes it clear at the end. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. And that's why in verses, he has that kind of curious little section there in verses 4 through 6, where he tells us that no matter how hard life might be for us under the sun, it's always better to be alive than to be dead. He says, to use a proverb, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, in order to understand that proverb, you have to translate it out of the original cultural context into our own because in our cultural context we love our dogs dogs a man's best friend i love my dog he's part of the family that's not what if you look at your dog that way you don't get his point because in his biblical culture and in every biblical culture dogs were seen as dirty and disgusting scavengers if you've ever been to a third world country where dogs roam the streets in the city and eat all the food and refuge and carcasses that lay around the city that's how dogs were seen in biblical times He's saying it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Now, in biblical times, just as in our day, lions were seen as the the greatest of all animals, the king of the beasts, the most noble, the most powerful. But he says, I'd rather be a living dog than a dead lion because at least a living dog has the hope of something. Whereas in Q's universe, again, he only sees things under the sun. Death means nothingness. If you want to talk to philosophers and psychologists and say, what's the most disturbing concept that human beings have to deal with? It's the concept of nothingness, of having no more knowledge, no more self-awareness, no more experience whatsoever, absolute nothingness, no knowing, no feeling, no consciousness. So better to have some kind of a hope than than to be nothing. Is what he's saying. See, that's why Q never advocates suicide. Have you wondered that? Because we always get to this point in our sermon where we say, look at where Q's perspective leads him. Utter, absolute despair. Why doesn't he say, well, why don't you just end it all? It's because a living dog is better than a dead lion. At least you've got something to hope for. And so there is a temporary, small hope that's available to a person who has a perspective that's under the sun. And quite honestly, most of the people you deal with day in and day out, this is what hope they live by. It's the hope of enjoying the simple pleasures of God's created world. How many times has he come back to say that over and over and over again? Commentators call, like, when you look at verses 7 through 10, commentators, when I read the commentaries on these passages, they call this his carpe diem message. He keeps giving it over and over again, carpe diem. In Latin, that means seize the day. In other words, grab the moment, enjoy it, live it with the greatest gusto, because when the moment passes, everything's gone. And that's the best hope that Q has to offer with his under-the-sun perspective. And you notice he says, go. There's an urgency. 
get out there, enjoy whatever you can find, whatever God allows you to experience and enjoy in this life, you enjoy it to the max because death is coming. Time is short. And so there's a great urgency to what he says here. It's a kind of an old movie now. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but a very popular movie called Dead Poet Society. In that movie, Robin Williams plays Professor Keating, who is an unorthodox new teacher in an elite boarding school for boys. And in one of his classes, he wants to talk to his students about the meaning of life. And so he leads them in procession out of the classroom and into the hallways. And he, as he starts his, his lesson on the meaning of life, he starts by saying these words. He says, boys, we are food for worms. Then he goes around and he points to, on the walls, there are pictures, like many schools have, but especially these elite boarding schools, pictures of former generations of students. And he points to the pictures of the students, and let me read to you some of, some of his speech at that point. He says, look at these young men. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you, invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen, do you hear it? Carpe, carpe, carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. He read Q's writing here, obviously, because he's saying the exact same thing that Q is saying. If death means nothingness, if there's nothing beyond the grave, and this world is all there is, then seize the day. Live for the moment. Enjoy. There are good pleasures in life that this creator has given us. Enjoy them, but do it quickly because time is short and death is coming. And so he goes on to list some of those pleasures. A couple of them we've talked about already. Three simple pleasures he lists. First of all, feasting. He always mentions this one. He says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. He talks about wearing white garments and putting oil on your head. Again, you have to go back into Old Testament culture to understand what he's saying there. The white garments were your party clothes. Those were your, your good going out, you know, going out on the town clothes, the white garments. And you put oil on your head because it's a hot, dry climate. It made your skin look better. You put a shine on you and, and you smelled better. So that, that was how you got ready to go out and have a feast, to have a party, to live it up and enjoy God's good creation. And as I looked at that and I, talked, I thought about, you know, he said a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. If you put that in human terms, it's like saying somebody on death row, an inmate on death row is better off than a dead king. That, that's how I'd put it in human terms. Well, here he's basically saying when it comes to food and feasting and partying, it makes me think of an inmate on death row's last meal. You know, you always get to eat your favorite meal right before they put you to death. And it's like, it's like that attitude. That's what Q's saying. It's like, death's going to be here in just a little bit. 
enjoy that last meal with all the gusto you can. That's, that's the best hope that you have in the world. Then he goes on to marriage. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. You see, Q, again, recognizes there's a creator, and he designed life to work in a certain way, and part of that design is for a man and a woman to come together in a lifelong commitment, and he, God has given that, the creator has given that as a good gift to provide comfort and pleasure and companionship in a difficult world under the sun. The Q can recognize that from observation under the sun. It's interesting that he speaks in favor of marriage. He doesn't speak in favor of go out there and have as many sexual experiences as you can possibly have. He could have said that, but he wouldn't because that's not consistent with what Q has said because Q never advocates pursuing the pleasures of sin, not because of any eternal issues because he won't allow himself to consider those, but he says that because he knows that sin is destructive under the sun. And Q knows that one of the most destructive sins under the sun is adultery. That you will pay for adultery in this life if you go down that road. And so that's why Q says, no, don't go there. Enjoy the wife that the Creator has given you. And then thirdly, he mentions work. Look at verse 10. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, that's the Old Testament word for the grave, to which you are going. Work, marriage, good food and drink, these are good gifts of the creator given to us at creation. He says, enjoy them to the max. That's your best hope in this life. But lest he end on a hopeful note, which he never does. We have verses 11 and 12. And there he makes sure that we don't forget his main points. That life under the sun is unfair and then we die. Don't ever forget, that's his main point. Life under the sun is unfair, and then we die. He says, the fastest, strongest, wisest, and richest among us do not always win. Matter of fact, in his experience, way too often they don't win. And he says, like fish in a net and birds in a snare, death is going to come upon us suddenly when we least expect it. Life is unfair, and then you die. See, we always get to this point with Q where he's presented the best gospel he can present from his under-the-sun perspective, and that's what we're left with. But the purpose of Q's message, as we've said over and over again, the purpose of Ecclesiastes is a book. Why is it in the Bible with such a despairing message? It's to drive us beyond the sun. It's to cause us to look above and beyond the sun for a word from heaven because that's where we find our hope. That's where we find our meaning and purpose in life. That's where we find out what is the purpose behind the unseen hand of God in the world. You can only know that through Scripture, the rest of Scripture. That's what Ecclesiastes is meant to point us to. Remember when Joshua, leading the armies of Israel against Jericho, it's his first battle to take over the promised land that God had promised to his people. And right before he went into battle, he was out surveying, planning, and he meets this awesome angelic warrior. And he's terrified. And the Bible tells us that's the angel of the Lord. And most commentators that I read anyway believe that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnation or pre-birth appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But be that as it may, it's the angel of the Lord and he appears 
And Joshua says to him, in his fear, something that you and I would probably say, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Now, if there was ever a moment in the history of mankind that you would expect an angel from the Lord or the Lord himself to say, I'm for you, Joshua. You're fighting my battle. You're doing what I told you to do, so I'm for you. But that's not what he says, is it? He says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And the angel of the Lord says, no. And Joshua says, wait, I don't think you heard my question right. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And the reason the angel of the Lord says no is because, going back to the Super Bowl or the NFC playoff illustration, his purposes are much more complex than that. His purposes are much more complex than whether Israel would defeat Jericho in that battle. And there were way too many battles in the Old Testament that the Israelites fought saying, God is on our side, and they lost. Because when it comes to whether God is for us or against us, it's not about any earthly battles. It's about a battle that was won on the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus died for his people. That's the battle where you ask the question, is God for us or is he against us? And the answer to that question comes down to, did Jesus Christ die for your cross on the sins or didn't he? That's the answer to the question, is God for us or against us? As Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Nothingness if Christ is not raised from the dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, if in Christ we have hope under the sun only, Q's perspective, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, it's God's promise to redeem those who put their faith in Christ that gives us hope under the sun. That's something you can only know by the power of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, open your ears, and change your heart so that you will believe it and understand it and grasp it and live by it every day. That's where your hope comes from. That's where your meaning and purpose in life comes from. Jesus Christ died for my sins and he's raised from the dead. Therefore, God is for me every day. As a Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, you can look in the mirror every morning and say to yourself, God is for me. Talk about a short phrase that will change how you live your day. God is for me no matter what I face today, no matter how much I suffer, no matter how hard my life is. God is for me because Christ died for my sins and was raised from the dead. And one day I will rise with him. You see, that most important question in life, is God for you, is answered by the gospel. Last week, we talked about Romans 8.28. Remember I told the story about my friend who almost died in a car accident, laid up for months in the hospital, and Christians kept coming in to him and quoting Romans 8.28 to him. You know, God works everything together for good. And, and I cautioned you against using that promise wrongly, as though somehow we're supposed to be happy and 
and sing praises in the midst of deep, powerful suffering. That wasn't, you know, that's, that verse needs to be put in context. Well, this week's I want to put in context. In the context of this eternal message of hope in the gospel, that's when that promise becomes something you hold on to in the midst of suffering. Because Romans 8 is answering Q's question. We've been studying Ecclesiastes for months now. Every time Q asks his question, make sure you go back to Romans 8 because that's where the answer is. Let me conclude my sermon by reading this to you. And listen to it as though you were Q. Q has come to his conclusion about meaning and purpose under the sun, what the gospel is to him under the sun, and here's the Apostle Paul's answer to Q. Here's God's answer to all of us about whether God is for us or against us. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For us. That's not a prideful thing to say. That's the most humble thing to say in the world. God is for us because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've not left us under the sun. Thank you that we are not stuck at the incomplete truth that Q presents. Thank you that you have spoken through the prophets, through the apostles, and most of all, through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and is raised again for our justification and ultimately our glorification. Our hope is not in this world. We are not citizens of the world's kingdoms. We belong to Christ. He is our King. He is our Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is coming again. And when he comes, all that you have promised will come true. Thank you for being for us through Christ. We pray in Christ's name, amen.